Take the five daily helpers online course to help you feel and cope better. Protecting yourself against the stresses and strains of daily life can be a challenge. Open Forwards helps you live life to the full by giving you the knowledge, the skills and the support to make yourself calmer, healthier and more confident. Find out how to sign up by moving on up to www.openforwards.com. Open Forwards helps you discover effective self-help, get some solid guidance that has a scientific basis and save time by getting straightforward rundowns on the stuff that works. This is Self-Help SatNav. Welcome to episode number 10 of Self-Help Satnav. I'm your host, Jim Lucas. And today we're going to be continuing the mini-series Reinventing Your Life, which is a great self-help book by Jeffrey Young, Janet Klosko. We've featured several episodes on this book already, which you can go back through openforwards.com slash series slash self-help satnav even uh, to see the other episodes that we've done. We've got into the stage now where we're featuring different life traps that show up in that book. And just as a reminder, a life trap is a particular set or pattern of problems that you struggle with as an adult that's born out of childhood experiences. And so it's a life trap because so far you seem to have struggled with it a lot of the time. And so I said in the last episode that uh, people had been getting in touch to let me know which life traps they're struggling with and wanting to find out whether I could feature an episode on something that they're struggling with. So continuing with that request, today I'm going to look at the mistrust life trap. So what is this? Well, it's the sense that others can't be trusted, that in some way they're going to betray you let you down, exploit you, hurt you, take advantage, or maybe even attack you. So as you get a sense, it's a really how you feel other people are in this world that you share together. And so what Klosko and Young also do well is they help you begin to explore the origins of these life traps to see if it kind of makes sense for you, to see if something like this has happened in your life. So if you go to page 89 in the book, you'll see some of the origins listed out. But I'll just give you a few here that I think are pretty kind of important. One is like what your relationship with your parents was like. So if you had parents who were physically, sexually, or psychologically abusive, then and that was persistent over time, then there's a good chance that you'd have developed this life trap. You'd have felt like you people really could not be trusted. After all, your parents are the people that you feel you should be able to trust the most. And if they let you down, then that shapes the way that you see other people 
in a massive, massive way. You can still develop this life trap though if your parents didn't do those things. For example, siblings may have done them or other family members. Or there may have been other people who were supposed to take care of you in some way. That might have been a group leader, whether that was uh, like a football team or a scout group or a brownies group. Whatever the type of group that you may have belonged to, whatever form that took, there may have been someone there who did something that broke your trust. It may have been babysitters, school teachers, leaders in religion. Uh, for example, the Catholic Church, which has um, been the subject, the focus of lots of media coverage over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, I guess kind of most notably in the film Spotlight with uh, a star of Michael Keaton, um, which if you're not familiar with was uh, to do with the Boston Globe, which is a newspaper in uh, Massachusetts. And they had an investigative team that used to write something called Spotlight. And they got into investigating incidents of the Catholic Church having sexually abused children. Um, and in the 1990s, this was uncovered. And it was uncovered that there was systemic and widespread abuse by the Catholic priests in the Boston area. And also that it had been known and covered up. So this is a big problem that seems to go alongside actually abuse taking place. Is it also been covered up? And I guess other reasons that we see this much more uh, now, or not necessarily that it's happening more, but that we're more aware of it, is with more cases being highlighted in the media with Jimmy Savile and other people that have been convicted of these crimes. So when you turn to the NSPCC website, which is the National Society for the Protection of Children, um, they suggest that over 57,000 children are needing protection from abuse in the UK. So it's probably to do with the number of people on the child protection register or um, deemed as being in need of protection. And they estimate that every child needing protection for every child, there's another eight who are suffering abuse, which is getting close to half a million. And they say that because it's, in their experience, it's common that people don't report it. Many people do not report it because it's frightening, because it's shameful. Because the person who is the perpetrator of that abuse may be someone who's also some form of stability to that child. Even under the most dire of circumstances, it's easier for a child to attach themselves to an abuser than it is to be without no guide, to be without no parent. And, okay, so we have childhood instances here, but also there might be incidences that affect this life trap that take place in adulthood. So it might be an adult traumatic event, for example, an assault or a rape. And when traumatizing things like this happen, they can completely change how things feel and how things seem. Like what goes in your body can seem very different. Like your heightened arousal, in terms of fear arousal I mean, that you're on guard and you're alert to signs of threat 
And so your body remembers, to quote Babette Rothschild, which is a, a seminal book on the subject of abuse. The body seems to remember traumatic things, like it gets stored in the body somehow. But it does get stored in memory. And so your memory takes the view that it's better to remember than it is to forget, because that's what's more likely to keep you safe. The trouble with traumas is that they tend to get stuck in the wrong part of your memory, and so they need to be processed more fully in order that you can get past that this event is like the defining thing, the thing that defines who you are as a person. So your view of yourself, other people in the world, often changes after a traumatizing event, whether it's occurred in adulthood or childhood. And so this is where a person often gets stuck. This is where they get stuck mistrusting people. And it's not to say that that mistrust didn't once make sense, because clearly people who struggle with trusting others have had good reason to not trust other people. But it can get stuck because it becomes globalised and there's a sense that everyone in the world can't be trusted. And so maybe the person acts as though everybody cannot be trusted. And so let's look a little bit at what sort of problems this tends to cause. It can cause marital problems. If you're married, this is going to affect your relationship together. Other romantic relationships if you're not married. Relationships with friends and family or work colleagues. Customers, wherever you work. People in the street or neighbourhood. Many people who've suffered abuse in their past end up getting into relationships with other people who are also abusive. And this is sad and fascinating. And you might ask, well, why is it? Why do people who've had abusive pasts also then get into relationships with people that are going to abuse them or are abusing them. Now I think it's a lot to do with compliance. And compliance is a learned way of dealing with abuse. Now, it's also natural to think that it's you would fight back if someone was abusing you. You'd object. But as a child, to object, to fight back, it might lead to further abuse and violence. And so you, weren't, you wouldn't have been strong enough to compete. So you can't compete. And so what makes sense then is to adapt to that, to survive, to do what you can to survive. And so that might have looked like surrendering, for example, if you couldn't get away as well. If surrender to be compliant was the better option, that would have been the thing that you would have done. And this would be true also of any adult traumatizing event where somebody else did something to you. If they were stronger, faster than you, your survival response would have been to be compliant or surrender. So it can be adaptive in certain contexts. And this is also something where dissociation can occur. Now this may be something you've heard of before, or may not, but it's fairly common or maybe more common than you think and it can be different things so it's a dissociation can be things like just drifting off into a sort of fog-like state at one end of the spectrum or at the other end it could be like switching to another part 
of your personality, which used to be called split personality or multiple personality. This is nothing to do with schizophrenia at all, which incorrectly and misleading is sometimes called split personality. Schizophrenia you can most closely associate with psychosis, which is about having um, hallucinations, either things that you hear or see that aren't really there, or paranoid beliefs that um, maybe people are out to get you or there are certain things kind of happening that aren't based in reality for pretty much everybody else. So that's something different. That is not what we're talking about here. So dissociation is a common and normal way of dealing with trauma. It helps you to escape psychologically. If you can't move, remove yourself or fight back, then through this surrender, through this compliance, your mind might just take you off somebody else. And if that abuse is persistent over time, then you might switch into these other personality types or characters to help you create as much of a barrier between that traumatic memory or incident that's occurring and you. It's a natural way of coping with the powerlessness of what's happening. Unfortunately, again, this is misrepresented a lot in media. There's a recent film coming out called Split, where some starring um, James McAvoy, and I think he has 20 plus different personality types in there. I'm not sure. I would guess that that's pretty unusual. Um, but one thing that's, I guess, a little frustrating for me about that film is that there's a lot of violence attached to these characters. And it's not helpful and it's not accurate when trying to portray what happens with people when they dissociate. Violence has nothing to do with dissociation. Violence is much more to do with hatred and anger, which is usually directed at people who are seen as being different from you. Like it begins with stigma and prejudice or discrimination. That's where most violence takes place. It takes place on a large scale. Or, or sorry, when it takes place on a large scale, it's carried out by those people, not by people who are struggling with their own mental health and well-being. Okay. So what other sort of problems exist? Well, problems with other more painful feelings like shame and guilt. People can often blame themselves for what happened to them. They get stuck feeling as though there's something wrong with them. Of course, when things happen to you as a result of what somebody else does, it isn't your fault. But self-blame can get you stuck. Because there's this thing called like the back room that doesn't get dealt with. So the back room is like what's, under, what's underlying your problems. So with people who struggle to mistrust, they may be just experiencing a lot of day-to-day -day anxiety and fear. And that's kind of what everybody else sees. But underneath there might be a lot of shame and guilt about what happened to them. But like they're not able to confront that. So that doesn't get experienced so much, doesn't get shown doesn't get connected with. And so therapy is a good and useful thing for helping people process what happened to them. It allows them to confront the more painful parts of what happened to them. 
Let me give you an example. So I once saw a client who suffered a lot of neglect and abuse from his mother growing up. His dad wasn't around. Um, uh, he had um, separated from the family. Um, and this client that I saw often felt scared and anxious in relationships. He felt ashamed that he couldn't overcome these difficulties and that they'd affected him for many, many years. He got stuck believing that his struggles and his past defined who he was. He was very mistrusting of others. He expected others to mistreat him. And it meant he withdrew in relationships romantically and in friendships. If he felt let down by somebody, that was it. He didn't want to have anything more to do with them. He'd been betrayed and that was it. On the one hand, this helped him to avoid the feelings of hurt again in the future. He could protect himself against being betrayed if he kept his distance, cut that person out. But on the other hand, it also made him very lonely and more ashamed. And so instead of confronting the person assertively, which not only did he feel unable to do, it's almost like it was outside of his uh, awareness to do that. Um, so what he tended to do was withdraw permanently from people he felt let down or betrayed by. So in therapy, what we did is we worked our way through the feelings of his past to understand that he'd got stuck dealing with the hurt, dealing with the fear and anger in unhelpful ways. And therapy showed him that he could learn and practice new ways that might make him, or take him somewhere different rather, might take him closer to people and more trusting of them. This doesn't mean that they would never let ever let him down again. No one could know for sure that he wouldn't be let down again. But what he could only do, what any of us can only ever really do, is choose what to do after our feelings show up and make choices about what works for our lives the best. Now what therapy also does that's helpful is it teaches skills to help deal with these thoughts and feelings when they arise. So it's not just about trying to do the helpful thing. It's about how do you manage the feelings when they show up and you're trying to do the helpful thing. So therapy is often quite useful for people who, do, who are struggling with this life trap. Okay, so this program is also self-help sat-nav, isn't it? It's not about necessarily going into therapy to resolve problems. So that's what I want to steer you towards here, is about things that you can do for yourself that are also going to help. Now, because this problem is particularly pervasive for a lot of people, particularly um, disruptive, it is useful to be able to see a therapist for some of this. And there are things that you can also do for yourself. And on page 99 in the Reinventing Your Life book, Young and Klosko outline 10 steps to help you change your mistrust and abuse life trap. And number one being that thing of seeing a therapist um, if you think that's possible or you can find that useful. Step two says find a friend you trust and try to do some imagery to recall memories of abuse and re relive each incident in detail. So again, that might be easier with a therapist, 
But if you've got a friend who can support you through that, then that could uh, also be of use to you. Now, that friend needs to be able to some, be someone who can validate your experiences, to not criticise them. He's not going to be someone who dismisses what you're feeling. Um, and you may want to start beginning kind of writing down some of this yourself. But I guess you've got to choose a time when you feel ready to do that. Like, you've got to feel like you're coping well enough, like you can manage your anxieties day to day. You've got things that you can focus your attention on when you're not doing this. Like, you have some job or meaningful way of occupying yourself during the day. That your home environment currently feels safe. Because you need to be able to move towards safe and soothing things if you're going to take your attention back to disturbing, hurtful, harming things that have happened before. But the point of trying to remember things is that it gives you a chance to vent your anger at the person who perpetrated this abuse. So this can help you get past blaming yourself if that's where you feel stuck. Like if you feel no anger towards the person or you've never felt it, then something hasn't really been processed there because it would be natural to feel anger towards the person who abused you. Um, again, whether this was physical, verbal, psychological or sexual, these can be the origins of this trap. So getting clear about the people in your past, in your life who have done that and trying to connect with incidents where that's occurred and trying to vent some anger to those people who did that. And so the aim of this is that you stop blaming yourself, that you can move past feeling helpless in any kind of permanent way. Yes, you may have been helpless when that happened, and you are not now. So we're helping you draw a connection between that thing. You're able to stand up for yourself now as a someone who's in a different situation and older. So the invitation here then is to move on to stop blaming yourself for what happened because you did not deserve this. And then Jan Klosko talk about consider reducing or stopping contact with your abuser while you work on this life trap. And the reason they're pointing that out is that for many people they may still have contact with the person. For example, if it was a, a parent or someone in the neighbourhood or the community where it's like it's almost just pretended that it didn't happen. If you're currently living with that person, then that may be a reason not to enter into these suggestions that are coming along. Like that environment probably isn't safe enough. That's not to say that they abuse you now but a home kind of works best when it's a sanctuary, somewhere where you can go and if that person who abused you is there in that same space, and that's going to threaten the psychological safety of your own home. So um, it would make sense to reduce or stop contact with that person.
And if it's possible, when you're ready, try to confront that person who abused you, either face-to-face -face or in letter form. So this, I guess, is different for different people. Sometimes it's possible, like if the person's still alive or you know where they are, to do that. Other times it's not possible because they may have passed or you don't know where they are anymore. And actually, you don't need necessarily to talk to them in person in order to get past this life trap. Like, what they say or do in response to what you say to them isn't a condition for you moving on. The power doesn't lie in their hands. The power lies in your hands. It's just about knowing what you can do to help you move on from what happened. Which is why the letter, sending a letter idea, is something I've used in therapy many, many times and often been of use to people. Which is where you write a letter to the person who did abuse you in some way. And so, in doing that, you're trying to vent your anger towards them. And I guess kind of stand, practicing standing up for yourself in a way that you weren't able to do before. So you're expressing anger and you move into this assertive type communication. And that's a very good processing move for you because it helps you move from feeling either stuck blaming yourself or just feeling perpetually furious and enraged by what happened. That you're making the choice to communicate something. Now you may not actually send this letter and again your moving off forwards isn't dependent on you sending the letter. What you're doing here is you're beginning to process your feelings in a different way and that's what's key. Now it's also important to stop tolerating abuse in your current relationships. So if this is happening, if you're in a relationship, whether that's a partner or friendship or someone who's in your life a lot, maybe even a work colleague or a boss, if you're continuing to suffer and put up with abuse from that person, try to move to stop tolerating that. If you need to physically remove yourself from that environment, then so be it. That could really work for you. That could be really good for your well-being. But if you don't want to, and you feel like it would be safe enough to stay in that environment and no longer tolerate it, then you can practice standing up for yourself, saying no, making requests for people to do things differently, refusing to do things the way that other people tell you to or ask you to or try to bully you into doing things. So saying no, refusing and making requests for people to do something different is key in assertive communication. Okay, so that's steps one through to seven. And what they're all about are processing what happened to you and dealing with any current forms of abuse that are taking place to sort of work your way through them, process them and no longer put up with them. Steps 8, 9 and 10 are more about um, how you now kind of move forwards from there. 
And so step eight is to try to trust and get closer to people who deserve it. There's a saying I quite like, which is, the best way to see if you can trust somebody is to do everything you can to trust them. Like to really trust them. And only then will you find out, will you discover whether you can trust them. You can't trust them by not trusting them. And so this step is about beginning to get clear about the choices you make about who you're going to try and trust. If you're very clear that someone in your life cannot be trusted, then it makes little sense to try to get closer to them. But if there are people in your life who deserve a chance, who have not given you any indication that they're going to significantly let you down or betray you, who want to be there for you, to live with you, alongside you, to support you, to connect with you, then maybe they are more deserving of your trust. And maybe you could begin to take steps towards them, to trust them more opening up to them, letting them a bit closer, taking a chance. Okay. Step nine, try to become involved with a partner who respects your rights and does not want to hurt you. So in the last step, I was really kind of talking about friendships, other family members, new people that you would meet. In step nine here, we're talking more kind of intimate relationships, which is more of a challenge because this is probably more risky for a lot of people. You're going to open yourself up much more, take more risks, because in an intimate relationship, you allow yourself to be more vulnerable. And ensuring that when you do that, they are someone who respects your rights. They listen to you. They hear you. They give you time to talk and space. They respect your space. Okay. And then step 10, it says, is do not abuse the people close to you. Now, this may be pertinent for some of you more than others. And I guess it's in that one coping strategy to deal with the fear of uh, being let down or suspecting that other people have ulterior motives is like you might fall into an overcompensatory type strategy where like you try to get in there first before they can get in there with you um, and it doesn't help you to trust people it only undermines your trust in others and so if you have that fear try to connect much more with actually what you want from a relationship who do you want to be what do you want to stand for? Do you want to stand for pulling the rug out from underneath people's feet? Hurting them before they hurt you? Or do you want to stand for something else? Do you want to show support, care, concern, for example? There may be things that are important to you. There may be other words to describe what you want to stand for in a relationship. And so trying to connect with those and move your feet in those directions rather than getting in there first, which may be the urge when those doubts about whether you can trust somebody show up. Okay. 
So I think I think this is I think this is a very tricky life trap for people. This takes time and it's all relational based, as are many of the life traps from this book and the ones that we've covered in this podcast series. But it's the first time that I've said you may want to actually kind of sit down or probably need to sit down with a therapist to work through this. And there are stuff that you can do alongside yourself, do alongside seeing a therapist as well. Um, okay. So I'm really hoping that you found this episode of particular interest. I'd really welcome your comments and your feedback on how you found the content in here. It may have been harder to hear and maybe tricky to apply. So please let me know what you thought, whether you would have wanted more direction, whether there have been some things that I could have highlighted more or other suggestions here. Just visit openforwards.com forward slash series forward slash self-help satnav and if you've liked this episode please leave a rating and a review over on itunes just go to openforwards.com forward slash itunes thanks for tuning in take care and i'll see you again next month